Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. The Brazilian variant of COVID-19 is detected in San Diego. Some vaccines may be less effective or that somebody who's already had COVID might be reinfected. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. California's new attorney general will be the first Asian American in that office. Certainly Rob Bonta is coming into this job with a reputation as a criminal justice reformer, but expectations will be high that he is going to meet some of their expectations and hopes. Pandemic drinking is leading to an increase in liver disease. And we'll meet the San Diego artists behind the new single, Southeast Summers. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hey, 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 this is Parker Edison, host of the Parker Edison Project on KPBS. The cool thing about joining KPBS is you make one simple donation, and that money ripples into supporting everything else you see and hear on KPBS, including podcasts like this one you're listening to right now, making a place for fresh voices and perspectives to be heard. And that's music to my ears. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click that blue Give Now button, and donate what you can, all right? Thanks. There is breaking news today that Governor Newsom is expanding the pool of people who are eligible for a COVID vaccine. The state says starting April 1st, everyone 50 years old and up can apply for a vaccine appointment. And starting April 15th, people 16 and up will be eligible for the vaccine. That's the good news. The problematic news is that the Brazilian variant of COVID-19, which caused a deadly spike in cases in that country, has been found in San Diego. County officials say two people have been infected with what's being called the P1 variant. One of the people came here from Mexico. The other is from San Diego and has not traveled. The two people do not know each other. Here's Dr. Eric McDonald, the county's medical director of epidemiology and immunization services. The Brazilian variant in particular is one that um, does have a decreased neutralization by uh, sera, which means that it is possible that the vaccine may be, le- or some vaccines may be less effective, or that somebody who's already had COVID might be reinfected with the strain. And whether the variant is more transmissible is still being investigated. Joining me is San Diego Union Tribune health reporter, Paul Sisson. Paul, welcome back. Thanks for having me. 
Now, I suppose the fact that no connection has been found between the two people who tested positive for the Brazilian variant could mean the variant is in general circulation in San Diego. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, you know, by process of elimination, if you have these two people that not knowing each other or ever having had any contact with each other, uh, then uh, that's exactly what Dr. McDonald concluded at yesterday's press conference. Uh, they, they do believe that this variant is in general circulation in San Diego County. Uh, I talked to Dr. Christian Anderson over at Scripps Research Institute uh, yesterday, and he said he thinks, uh, you know, it's not really showing up in their uh, genetic surveillance that they're doing of uh, positive test results. Uh, so he said he thinks its prevalence is still probably under 1% of, of all, all cases that are coming in. And have other cases been found in California? Yes. Uh, so far, they've announced that they found a total of four. Uh, that total appears to include one of our two cases. Uh, and I think that their last update was on the 19th of this month. Uh, so I think a few other cases, including one here in San Diego County, uh, have been reported to the California Department of Public Health, but haven't yet been added to the total. So I, th I think we're probably going to get an update on that uh, still this week. Now, how did the P1 variant affect coronavirus cases in Brazil? Gosh, you know, it really just it just caused them to to have a, a massive uh, uptick uh, here in in the spring. You know, they had they had a really big outbreak in in uh, you know started in Manaus and then spread uh, throughout much of the country uh, late last year. Um, and this appeared to be just mostly uh, the, the more commonly uh, circulating variants uh, that, that have spread out of uh, Wuhan, China. Uh, but but then, uh, you know, and so so a lot of uh, the, the countries, uh, a lot of the states there in Brazil uh, had a, a high level of, you know, what we would call herd immunity. A, a lot of people had gotten infected in, late in the year, and it looked like, uh, you know, they were probably a lot of them going to be immune to getting uh, any kind of reinfection. Uh, and then P1 came along and uh, reinfected uh, many, many people uh, throughout the country. And, and to this day, they're, they're really struggling. I, I saw a government report yesterday uh, that came out uh, maybe like last week, uh, and it indicated that many of their intensive care units are, are now over 90% occupancy. Do we know if this variant is more deadly? Uh, it does not, uh, fr from what they can tell at the moment, you know, and they're still researching this, but what the experts have said is they, they haven't seen uh, a huge uh, increase in, in mortality or transmission. Uh, you know, on Twitter today, I saw some folks who, who said, uh, well, we, you know, actually we are seeing uh, some additional uh, uh, transmissibility, but other scientists are kind of pushing back against that. These are, are pre-pressed papers that haven't yet had full peer review. So it's a little hard to know exactly what to make of them, but it doesn't appear at the, at least in, at the outset that the uh, transmissibility and, and, uh, and mortality factor is is super higher than, than what we've already seen with other variants. Yeah, let me talk to you a minute about another variant, because when the B117 variant first discovered in the UK, when that showed up in the US, there were concerns that would become the dominant strain by March. Has that happened? Last I heard, it had not yet happened in San Diego County. Uh, Dr. Anderson over at Scripps uh, Research, he, he indicated to me uh, about mid-month that uh, he felt like there was somewhere between 30 and 40 percent of the positive tests that were coming back in San Diego County 
were of the 117 variant. Uh, I think last month he said that he felt like we were still on track to uh, reach dominance of 117 in San Diego County uh, by the end of the month, but we haven't gotten a more recent update on that. So I have to confess that I'm, I'm not quite sure what their current thinking is. Uh, you know, we've we've managed to vaccinate so many people now uh, that uh, that certainly plays into the equation. What do we know about this Brazilian variant? Do doctors think it could become dominant? Uh, I, I was just talking to Dr. Anderson about that uh, over email this morning. Uh, he, he indicated that he doesn't really expect it to outcompete 117. At this point, he says the evidence that he's seen uh, seems to indicate that that 117 is just more transmissible, uh, and so over time, capable of uh, of outcompeting uh, P1 or the uh, the variant that that's come out of South Africa. Do we know if our current vaccines are effective against the P1 variant? Uh, you know, the the vote is still out on that to some degree. Uh, the the most research. Uh, that has been done uh, has been for the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. They did test that pretty extensively in South America, and, and it looks like it may have a, a fair amount of uh, of effectiveness against P1, but probably less so than the than the strains that are uh, that are coming out of uh, Wuhan um, originally. Uh, and same with uh, Moderna and uh, and Pfizer. Uh, you know, they're still doing research on vaccine efficacy, but but early uh, results from initial trials seem to indicate that you need uh, somewhere between two and three times uh, as many antibodies in your blood uh, to fight off P1 uh, than, uh, than other uh, more commonly circulating uh, variants. Okay, then. So what is the health community saying about the best way to deal with this variant? Uh, they're saying, hey, guys, please continue to get vaccinated as quickly as possible. And in the meantime, please do everything you can uh, to avoid getting infected. Uh, the more this thing replicates in our bodies, the, the more chances uh, are that it, uh, that it has additional mutations. Uh, and so keeping the, the amount of infection low. Uh, it's just very critical at this uh, at this moment that we're at, where vaccination is really starting to take hold. I, I talked to uh, Paul Offit, a, a infectious disease expert on the on the East Coast earlier today, and, and he was saying, you know, we, we really do expect, even with P1, uh, if you're vaccinated, you you should have a much lower chance of hospitalization or of death. So even if you do get infected, it's uh, the consequences are, are much uh, less likely to be severe if, if you're vaccinated. So, so the, the real critical uh, take home at this moment is, is get vaccinated as soon as you possibly can. I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune health reporter Paul Sisson. Paul, as always, thank you very much. Thank you. California Assemblyman Rob Bonta has been chosen by Governor Gavin Newsom to become the state's next attorney general. Upon his appointment, Bonta would be the first Asian American to occupy the position of attorney general, a notable milestone which comes at a time of increased anti-Asian American hate across the nation. In particular, Filipino Americans comprise the largest ethnic group in San Diego behind Latinos and are by far the most populous Asian American community in the area. San Diego activist and Filipino Resource Center director Joanne Field says that Bonta's appointment is a huge step forward for the community. 
the appointment of Rob Bonta to become California's next attorney general is really promising of what other opportunities that will be afforded for other Filipinos and Asian Pacific Islanders to run for office and to aspire to lead in the community. Joining me to discuss Rob Bonta's appointment as Attorney General is KQED politics and government editor Scott Schaefer. Scott, welcome. Hi, Jade. So where does Bonta's ascension to one of the state's highest offices fit in with the current reckoning we're having as a nation in understanding the extent of violence and discrimination against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders? Well, obviously, Rob Bonta, if he's confirmed by the legislature, which is all but certain, uh, will become the first Filipino American to be attorney general in California. And I would venture to guess perhaps the United States of America. And uh, that's significant. The thing about attorneys general, though, is that sometimes they come into the office with reputations of being progressive, as did Javier Becerra and Kamala Harris before that. And then sometimes, uh, you know, the advocates are a little disappointed that they don't go far enough. And I'll give you just one example. And that would be how Javier Becerra withheld police records uh, after the passage of a law. KQED and other news organizations had to fight him to get some of those records released. So we will see. I mean, certainly Rob Bonta is coming into this job with a reputation as a criminal justice reformer. He was endorsed by people like Alicia Garza from Black Lives Matter. Uh, But expectations will be high that he is going to meet some of their expectations and hopes. And can you give us a brief overview of his political career so far? What led Governor Newsom to nominate him? Well, he knows him from uh, probably uh, going all the way back to when Newsom was mayor of San Francisco. Rob Bonta worked as a deputy city attorney uh, for about a a decade or so. Um, And then he was elected to the state assembly from uh, representing the East Bay, Oakland and Alameda and other parts of the East Bay in 2012. uh, And he's been reelected easily uh, ever since. Uh, And they have a relationship. They're both Bay Area politicians. They've come to know each other. I got the impression yesterday at the press conference uh, that the governor knows Bonta's family. Uh, Bonta and his wife met when they were 17 years old and, uh, you know, have sort of high school sweetheart situation. And so they've been close. They're allies. And I think, you know, one thing that Gavin Newsom was looking for, as any governor would, is someone who would be, quote unquote, loyal, you know, somebody who's going to be an ally, especially going into a possible recall and then reelection campaign. Uh, You want to have an attorney general who you can trust. As he steps into the most powerful law enforcement office in the state of California, it is notable that Bonta has spoken out against harsher penalties for perpetrators of hate crime uh, that some have advocated for. I've heard people say that there's a hate crime, let's issue the death penalty. That's not the place to go for me. We have enough enhancements, enough mass incarceration, enough over-sentencing. Do we have a sense of what his relationship is with the law enforcement community and and how we can expect him to interact with them during this tenure? Yeah, well, the attorney general is the, you know, they sometimes refer to them as the top cop and they have to have good relationships or at least working relationships with uh, each county district attorney as well as sheriffs, local law enforcement, police and so on. But, you know, Bonta is somebody who has been has embraced criminal justice reforms uh, in the, in the shape of Prop 47 and Prop 57 that voters approved. He has passed uh, legislation 
that bans private prisons. Uh, he opposes cash bail. He also supports more oversight and investigation of police shootings. So right away, you can see that those are not positions that most law enforcement officials, especially district attorneys, embrace. So the initial reaction from the District Attorneys Association, at least the predominant one, there's a sort of a rogue group of more liberal district attorneys. They were cheered by his appointment. But uh, I think that the district attorneys group in California was pretty congratulatory, but not much more. I'm sure they're taking a wait and see attitude. And if you could talk a bit about the political landscape Bonta will be stepping into as the incoming attorney general. Yeah, well, of course, California has been the tip of the spear against the Trump administration. Uh, Javier Becerra, who's now the Health and Human Services Secretary, filed about 120 lawsuits on a huge range of issues against the federal government on the uh, on immigration, on health care, women's health, LGBT rights. And so though that kind of confrontational approach from the AG is no longer needed with the Biden administration now in place and very friendly to California. And so they will have to sort of figure out new priorities. I would imagine that he will be focusing on things like environmental justice, environmental regulations, on health care, consumer advocacy, as well as the more bread and butter issues of public safety that attorneys general always focus on. I've been speaking with Scott Schaefer, senior editor for KQED's Politics and Government Desk. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. You're so welcome. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. What do people do when they're shut up in their homes, anxious about a deadly disease, stressed out about kids not in school and jobs on the line? Well, for many people during the pandemic, the answer is drink. Last fall, a Rand Research Corporation study found that consumption of alcohol in the U.S. was up 14% last year, with a big 41% increase among women. And doctors are starting to see the results of increased drinking as those soothing cocktails and bottles of wine turn into serious health problems. Joining me is Dr. Rohit Lumba, who specializes in gastroenterology and liver diseases at UC San Diego Health. Dr. Lumba, welcome to the program. Thank you, Maureen. Glad to be here. Have you experienced an increase in patients with alcoholic liver disease during the pandemic? Yes, um, we have a group of eight hepatologists at uh, UC San Diego, and uh, we are definitely seeing a big increase in patients who are excessively consuming alcohol. And then the severe form of it, including 
alcoholic hepatitis, uh, acute pancreatitis related to excessive alcohol use, and then those patients who have uh, decompensated liver disease that need liver transplantation. So those rates are increasing nationally and uh, particularly in San Diego. Have you seen a change then in the age or circumstances of the people who are coming in with liver problems? Yes. Uh, what we observed, and these are anecdotal experiences, but confirmed by national studies, as you just mentioned, that uh, now we are seeing patients who you know, used to have a normal life, maybe consumed you know, one to two drinks every day, but suddenly because of the pandemic, lost a job or a family member, some major life event happened that caused a trigger for these, you know, normal individuals who then start increasing their consumption of alcohol and then get into trouble without really realizing that this could be harmful to them. And this is the particular section of the society that I think is increasing where they had no idea that they could be in trouble because of alcohol. And now they need uh, admission to the hospital. They're having GI bleed or need a liver transplantation. And are the, the people that you're seeing perhaps younger or are, are they skewing female or anything of, of the, that nature? Yeah, we're definitely seeing um, alcoholic hepatitis uh, to be happening in younger and younger age groups. Uh, we're seeing individuals in their uh, late 20s, early 30s and 40s who are presenting with acute alcoholic hepatitis. And this, I think, it has been rising even before the pandemic and then just pandemic added fuel to the fire. We're also seeing increased number of women presenting with uh, alcoholic hepatitis, but in San Diego, we're seeing it across the board. Uh, and it's particularly important here uh, because of uh, Hispanic ethnicity being a risk factor for fatty liver disease. I think lots of people wonder how much alcohol puts their health at risk. Does that amount differ from person to person? Uh, this is an important question, and there are many ways of looking into it. If you ask a liver doctor that what is the risk of liver-related mortality, then, you know, daily consumption of alcohol increases your risk for liver-related mortality, although just slightly. What is particularly damaging is something called as binge drinking. This is really something to be completely avoided. It's harmful across the board particularly harmful in those patients or individuals who are overweight and obese. What is binge drinking? It is consuming six drinks for men within four to six hours and four drinks for women within four to six hours. And so that's really bad for the liver and general health, and that absolutely must be avoided. And doctor, what does too much alcohol do to the liver? You drink excessively, puts fat in the liver, cells start dying, they secrete inflammatory cytokines, leading to scarring in the liver, leading to cirrhosis of the liver if it continues unabated long-term. Is there any way to reverse the damage? Absolutely. There are many ways of reversing the damage, but one thing that definitely works, even in the setting of cirrhosis, if you completely quit or abstain from alcohol, you can reverse this disease. And you can reduce the risk of complications as well as decompensation. So number one is completely abstaining from alcohol if you get in trouble. How do you do that? I think really identifying issues related to excessive alcohol use. They might be related to depression, anxiety, certain triggers in life, and potentially could be improved with therapy, alcohol anonymous, 
as well as family and psychosocial support. There are also treatments available for alcohol use disorder, because particularly that's where if you have difficulty in maintaining the uh, moderate amount of alcohol intake and you have uh, excessive alcohol use, then you probably want to see a de-addiction psychiatrist who can help you reduce your alcohol consumption. And that way you can reduce the risk of end organ damage. That's what we call when you develop cirrhosis of the liver or pancreatitis and uh, inflammation in the pancreas. So treatment of alcohol use disorders would be important. And that is available where you could be offered psychotherapy or certain medications that will reduce your risk for excessive drinking. And what are the consequences to a person's health of not addressing the issue and not getting help to stop drinking? I think there are a lot of consequences yeah, in terms of liver disease, you know, development of cirrhosis, or something called as alcoholic hepatitis. When patients uh, develop jaundice, which is yellow color of the eye and skin, they may develop confusion, may come into the hospital with vomiting of blood. And sometimes, you know, patients develop life-threatening infections and may die. Once you develop alcoholic hepatitis, risk of mortality goes up to about 50% over um, 90 days. So it's a fatal disease unless you stop drinking alcohol completely and you can get supportive nutritional care. Other uh, worse health effects include acute pancreatitis as well as chronic pancreatitis, where patients develop severe abdominal pain related to excessive alcohol use, leading to inflammation in the pancreas, and that can also be life-threatening in some individuals. And then we know that alcohol use also causes certain kinds of cancers, including liver cancer. And don't some people actually need liver transplants? Yes. We have seen nationally, and especially here in San Diego, number of patients presenting need for liver transplantation has increased, especially related to alcoholic liver disease and alcoholic hepatitis. And do you expect to see more patients with liver disease finally come in for treatment as the pandemic threat continues to decrease? Absolutely. We're already seeing this, and we've started some outreach in South Bay as well as in Imperial County in El Centro, because we really think that if you see liver disease mortality rates are significantly higher in San Diego and Imperial County. Also, liver cancer rates are also about two times higher in San Diego and Imperial County than an average county in the United States. Why is that? And I think it may be because of uh, Hispanic uh, ethnicity predominantly in our two counties, as well as rampant diabetes, obesity, and on top of it, uh, potentially alcohol use combined with uh, the risk of liver disease due to diabetes. And all of these metabolic problems with alcohol use is, uh, you know, adding uh, fuel to the fire and leading to excessive liver disease-related morbidity and mortality. So I do expect more and more patients to come. I've been speaking with Dr. Rohit Lumba. He specializes in gastroenterology and liver diseases at UC San Diego Health. Dr. Lumba, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much, Maureen. It's my pleasure. Appreciate you doing this program. California was already facing bottlenecks in its nursing supply pre-pandemic, and because of COVID-19 constraints, nursing students have spent the last year with limited access to in-person training. In a story that first aired on the California Report, Shireen Karim, a student at Pierce College in Los Angeles, got a first-hand look. 
you know, one of the things that we've done, even though it really doesn't mimic a urethra, is like water bottles, like putting a water bottle into the stuffed animal, like, you know, little opening, things like that. But someone's urethral opening is smaller than a water bottle hole. Erin Abila is a nursing student at San Diego State University. She's talking about learning how to use a Foley catheter, a medical procedure where a tube is inserted into a patient's urethra to collect their urine. Normally, Abile would be practicing this task on a medical mannequin, but these days, her model is a unicorn pillow pet. Before the pandemic, when I learned Foley catheter, I only practiced it when I was in person. I only practiced it when I had access to the labs. And now I can practice it at any time. You know, why couldn't that be a good thing? Here's why, says Abile. It's not a good thing when there's no one there to correct my habits. And so it becomes a habit-forming thing. And it's hard to break habits when you have practiced that so many times. So it's really good to correct them while you're while you're still learning. Gerard Brogan, director of nursing practice at the California Nursing Association, says he's worried remote training will compromise the clinical skills of newer nurses. He explains why by sharing an example about a friend who felt a constant need to urinate after he was catheterized during a hospital stay. So he asked uh, the nurse coming by who was a new grad who'd done stimulation. She looked at the computer readout and said everything's fine. Then he saw an older nurse who was trained not on the simulation, told her the exact same problem. She looked at the catheter pipe, for want of a better term, and it was kinked. With hospitals overwhelmed with patients during the pandemic, nursing programs are struggling to provide enough clinical hours to their nursing students. This forced the Board of Nursing to allow for relaxed requirements, and now students like Erin Abile are doing simulation exercises half of the time, instead of a quarter of the time, like usual. On top of this, some nursing programs had to pause schooling entirely until they could adapt to the new remote learning, says Joran Spetz of UC San Francisco. This will delay the supply of new nurses. At the same time, some current staff are burning out. Losing nurses close to retirement a few years early is not great, but we knew that they were going to retire. If we end up losing a bunch of nurses who are in their 30s, Those are nurses who had another 20 or 30 years of working life available for us. There are also deeper concerns about remote training, beyond just being able to effectively insert a catheter. Here's Gerard Brogan again. Common sense would tell you that you cannot simulate uh, emotion. Nurses look after people in the last stages of their life, for example, uh, and you cannot simulate the fear and dread. And frankly, we're worried about the attempt to do so. In this assignment, you will care for Tina Jones, a 28-year-old woman who has been admitted to Shadow General Hospital to treat an infected wound on her foot. You will also consider Tina's chronic health conditions, type 2 diabetes mellitus, and allergy-induced asthma. Yeah, that's like the background. She's giving me my background on my patient. Over Zoom, Erin Abile walks you through one of her simulation exercises. The lesson tests her knowledge on basic vital checks and pharmacology, but Abile can't really communicate with her patient. At one point, Abile says something completely unrelated to the lesson, but patient Tina Jones still responds with a mechanical affirmation. So it's to say that Tina Jones, I don't know much about her besides what meds I need to give her, the pain she was feeling on her left leg, and I couldn't pry more into her personality. I couldn't pry into her personal life. I couldn't pry 
into her worries. I couldn't pry even into her pain for some reason. The areas of hospitals that have been most restricted from nursing students are emergency rooms and ICUs, because those are the places where it's hardest to manage risk. That means that nursing students are cut off from important specialized in-person training at a time when California needs specialized nurses more than it has in decades. And that was Shireen Karim, a student at Pierce College in Los Angeles, reporting. Her story was produced as part of a collaboration between the California Report and Cal Matters College Journalism Network. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This weekend, local musical ensemble Project Blank presents a live performance and screening of Sarah Henney's experimental documentary and composition, Contralto. Henney's is a contemporary composer who studied percussion at UC San Diego. This piece explores gender and sound with a cast of trans women performing vocal exercises and reciting fragments of speech therapy texts all alongside a score of percussion, strings, and found instruments. Composer Sarah Hennies recently spoke with KPBS arts producer Julia Dixon-Evans. Here's that interview. Let's start with the work's title, Contralto, which is the musical term for the lowest women's vocal range. What does this work say about gender and about sound? Well, this is actually a big topic in uh, choral pedagogy right now, especially in like high schools and colleges, because choral teachers are starting to see more and more students transitioning at younger ages. And they've suddenly realized that like the intensely gendered world of vocal music uh, is causing them a lot of problems because they want to treat their students with respect. And, you know, they now have female students who might be, you know, in the bass section. It's a very straightforward, easily understandable version of like, of really what the piece is titled after, which is that this idea of the so-called female voice does not exist, that a female voice is the voice of a person who is female. I'd like to play a short clip from the work. Hi. Hey. Sarah, trans women's voices are unaffected by increasing estrogen levels in the body, not in the same way that trans men's voices are impacted by increasing testosterone. How does this work touch on what is known as voice feminization therapy? The original seed of this work was that I wanted to create a trans woman only space. And I was thinking about before I had the title or before I had this um, kind of speech exercise thing in the piece, I was 
thinking about the social condition of, of like never having your own space, um, of, of usually just being like the only person in the room who is trans, much less a trans woman, like basically almost all the time. Without those spaces, there's really intense pressure on trans women to um, assimilate in ways that are uh, easier for trans masculine people because the things that physically happen to trans masculine people make them more identifiable as a cisgender male than trans women typically do, meaning their voices get lower, they can grow beards, and there are certainly there are similar things going in, quote, the other direction, but voice is not one of them. And so I found the voice to be really like the perfect sort of distillation of this issue of trans women unfairly uh, being forced into conforming to these like cisgender stereotypes of what being a woman means. Um, so I uh, took a class at Ithaca College where I live several years ago that the class is taught by speech pathology professionals and grad students for trans people. And of course, the, the name of the class specifies trans people, not trans women. But when you attend the class, there are no trans men there. It's only trans women, which is not to say that trans men don't feel uncomfortable with their voices, because I know that that's true. But it's a different kind of discomfort where uh, a trans woman's voice can actually like cause them to be unsafe or cause us to be unsafe. The way that the class is set up, and I will say I'm very careful to say this, that I do not find the practice of teaching uh, components of cisgender female speech to trans women to be a bad thing. Like I completely understand and empathize with people who would like to speak differently than they currently do. But I will say that the way that this vocal instruction is set up, and not just at Ithaca College, but in general, the impulse by speech pathologists is to look at cisgender female speech and say, all right, this is what a woman sounds like, and here are the uh, sonic components of that, and now you try to imitate that. Because aside from that being you know, physically impossible for lots of reasons, it sets up this internal monologue that the thing that you are trying to do is unattainable. And so we are made to feel that we are less than in a way that like we cannot control. And so I really think that the way these speech classes should be taught is to help someone based on their own unique needs and characteristics, find a voice that makes them feel comfortable rather than telling them, here's what cis women do and now you try it, which I, I think is, is really fraught for a lot of reasons. Contralto is described as something that exists in the spaces between traditional documentary and experimental music. What can be gained from live scoring films, especially ones where sound is so important? Um, well, I always say that the, the, it's not a film with a score, it's a piece of music with a film. You know, with most films that have music, the music is there to support the film. But in Contralto, the musicians are an equal partner. Like, obviously the, the video is the focus of the piece in terms of like subject matter, but the musicians are almost this kind of like Greek chorus, 
you know, part of the experience of the piece is that the instrumental parts are very physical. The piece is an hour long, and so by the end of the piece, you have very tired performers working really hard, and that visual and experiential aspect of the piece is really important to me. Contralto is a performance piece. It's, it's a, a piece of live music with a video. And you have ties to San Diego. You studied with Stephen Schick at UCSD. What does it mean to you to bring this work here to a place you've lived and worked in? It's amazing. I really wish I could be there in person. The two years that I spent at UCSD were really important to me. And I went to a somewhat conservative um, big state school for undergrad. And I remember being 21 and just so excited to go to a school where everyone was just totally entrenched in experimental music. It just was a really great experience for me. And also I started to write more sort of for lack of a better word, proper compositions, you know, like dots on paper type of pieces. And so it was only two years of my life, but it's still uh, an experience that like is important to me and that I still think about a lot. So yeah, I'm really happy that the work gets to be presented in San Diego. Sarah Hennies is the composer of the experimental video and music work Contralto, and she spoke with KPBS arts producer Julia Dixon-Evans. Contralto will be performed by Project Blank and screened online Friday at 7 p.m. and Sunday at 2 p.m. A new summertime anthem about Southeast San Diego was just released called Southeast Summers. It's a feel-good collaboration between homegrown artist Ryan Anthony, Mitchie Slick, and Andrew Day. From lowrider cars to roller skates, the song highlights the Southeast vibe. Joining me is Ryan Anthony. One of three of the artists who just released Southeast Summers with Andrew Day and Mitchie Slick. Ryan, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here today. How did you, Mitchie and Andrew, uh, connect for this collaboration? So me and Mitch, we have a, we have a, that's, that's the big homie. That's OG San Diego legend. That's my guy. Andrew Day, the homie Nate, he went to one of her concerts in San Diego. It was probably like 2015. And he got backstage and he sent me a video and she gave me a shout out. She was like, I really love Barely See the Beach, Ryan Anthony. I love you. I love you. And I was just like, oh, I didn't even know she knew about me. So then I reached out to her then and I was just like, you know, thank you. You know, hopefully we could work, you know, in the in the future. In the song, you shout out Southeast neighborhoods like Skyline and Logan Heights. Tell me about the Southeast vibe you you all portrayed in the song and in the video. You know, what makes Southeast San Diego, Southeast San Diego, especially during the summertime? Yeah, I mean, it's it's the people, it's the weather, it's the the backyard barbecues, it's the, the car hops, it's the, you know, even the beach, the beach parties, it's, uh, it, it's just... It's always been a vibe. Summer in San Diego has always been a vibe. You know, when the sun come out, everybody come out and, you know, it's just a, it's like a party all the time. And it's connecting, connecting with your loved ones and and just enjoying each other. 
And, and I know you grew up in Spring Valley. Um, how are your experiences reflected in this project? The project that the Southeast Summers is on is called Barely See the Beach 3. So this uh this like my trilogy of it's called Barely See the Beach. That's my brand. And uh ever since the first one, I've just always talked about my experiences in San Diego, growing up in San Diego, maneuvering through, you know, because there are negative aspects within Southeast San Diego that a lot of people are familiar with, but it's just showing people how to maneuver through and still having a positive mindset about it and not falling victim to you know, those obstacles that are thrown in, in my way. So I just, I always talk about the positive sides of things, even though there is negativity, I always talk about the positive. Yeah. And, and I want to ask you about that positive, you know, you mentioned it is important to invoke positive feelings about growing up in these communities. Talk to me more about that. Look at when we're growing up, how they portray like African countries, right? We have this they put this picture in our mind that everybody over there is poor. Everybody over there is dirty. Everybody over there needs 25 cents a day to live. And it's not like that. And, and I mean, there probably are places within that, but the, you can't to group a whole people that that's how that entire continent is. You know, it's a crazy perception to put onto an entire group of people. And I feel like, when you're in inner cities, they do the same exact thing. I think I feel like it's in any inner city across America or across the world. They put the negativity, that negative cloud over that inner city, and they only want to show the negative stuff. So it's like if you, anytime you hear about Spring Valley, Southeast National City on, on TV, somebody is a victim to something. So I like to bring the, okay, there are those things going on, yeah. But check out all this other positive stuff going on. Look at all these kids that are trying to, you know, improve their life and do better and and progress our our community as a whole. So I just I just like to shine that that positivity on us. And, and Ryan, I, I know I follow you on Instagram, and you're always out serving the community. Um, why is it so important to give of your time and talents like that? Um, this community raised me. I am who I am because of this community, and. I just I, I love I love to give back. I love to be outside with the with the people. And I don't ever feel like it's a I'm helping somebody that need it or it's like, you know, these people don't have. So I'm giving it to them. It's just these are my people like this is my family. This is. It's, it's everything. It's my house. It's my house. You got to take care of your house. Hey, and, and I know this song is specific to Southeast San Diego, but I imagine many neighborhoods all across the country will relate to it. How do you feel about that? If it, it feels good, I got a, my little cousin, he lives in Washington. And he called me and he was so high. He was like, they played your song on the radio out here in Washington. I was like, yo, what? That's wild. And it was just, it was crazy. Seeing how excited he was about it, it made me, you know, I was excited too, but it, just seeing his excitement made me real happy. So it's, it's been real dope seeing it spread. I've been speaking with Ryan Anthony, one of three Southeast San Diego artists who just released Southeast Summers. Thank you so much for joining us, Ryan. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Summertime is South Beach. 
summertime is out days. When it's summertime is out days. When it's summertime is out days. Summertime is out days. Ain't no other place I'd rather be. When it's summertime.